0: May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. So we continue our sermon series in the book of 2 Samuel. And our reading for today is a very rich reading. There's really a lot going on, more than we can fully unpack today. But I want to focus in on what the the text calls the chest of God, better known as the Ark of the Covenant. We've all seen Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? If you haven't, you should. So I'm going to focus in on this this moment or this episode when Uzzah touches the ark and falls down dead. It's a puzzling story to our modern ears because according to our modern sensitivities, God is overreacting. Come on, God, give the guy a break. He's trying his best. Why have a temper tantrum, God? But these sorts of questions belie a misunderstanding of who God is. You see, these assumptions betray how indebted we are to a modern understanding of the Holy Scriptures and our demand to make God palatable, to make God formed in our own image. But the truth of the matter is God is not fickle. God doesn't fall in and out of love. God is not temperamental, given to prones of fits of fury. God is, you could say, completely unlike the Greek gods of Olympus, who are fickle, who do fall in and out of love with their chosen humans, with their conniving jealousies and their petty quarrels. So the question is, what kind of God is God? Well, God is holy, utterly unique, utterly unlike all other gods. He's not a God to be trifled with. But again, we like an easy-going God, don't we? A God who's chilled out. A God who really doesn't get upset about anything. We like this kind of God because this is a God we don't have to take seriously. But the true and living God is the one who created the whole of creation. Not out of necessity. Not because he was bored or lonely. God created all that is out of an outpouring of the very fact that God is. God is holy and God is love. God is holy love. So how does the eternal holy love of God manifest itself in a broken creation that has turned away from him, that has rejected him and his ways? This is the proper question to be asking as we consider God's response to Uzzah's touching of the Ark. The love that is God is not an emotion or a feeling. As Bishop Robert Barron defines it, Love is the act of willing the good of the other. This means that love expresses itself in a variety of ways depending on the object of love. That's a very technical definition, so let's unpack that a little bit. What Bishop Barron is getting at is this. If the object of my love is being stubborn or self-destructive, love toward the other will take a dark form. It does this because the person who is loving, in this case God, is passionate about the other and cannot watch stand to watch the other hurt or destroy themselves. So we understand that part of God's love, right? That's God coming in the, in the person of Jesus Christ to save us from our sin, our self-destructive tendencies. But it also means, on the other hand, that God, the lover will not allow himself to be mistreated or maligned by the beloved. And if you have a parent, if you are a parent, you will understand this very well. Think about when it comes to disciplining your children, especially when they are putting themselves at unnecessary risk, or when they're being a little lippy and disrespectful. So in this episode with Uzzah, we see what Bishop Barron calls the dark face of God's love on full display. We like the bright and cheery God. We don't like the dark face of God's love. And it should rightly startle us because it makes it clear that we are not dealing with a God of our own making. We are dealing with the God who makes all things. So let's unpack this image of the chest of God or the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is God's earthly throne, it's the earthly seat of his heavenly kingdom. You ever seen the king's speech? Right? And the speech, what does he do? What does the speech therapist do? He actually sits in the throne. And what does the king do? He kind of loses it, right? Same idea going here. The ark is God's throne. And the ark underlines God's royalty, his utter singularity, his holiness. You don't sit on the king's throne. Now the ark is also central to the people of Israel's identity as a covenant people the people that God himself chose and set apart to be a royal priesthood, to be a holy nation, to be a people who pray and worship and serve on behalf of all humanity and indeed of all creation. So the centrality of the Ark is undeniable. And the centrality of the Ark is underlined by where it is placed in the camp. It is placed in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, and the tabernacle is always in the center of the Israelite camp. So the tabernacle, of course you remember at this point, because the Israelites, they haven't set in Jerusalem yet. Right now in our reading, David is getting ready to make his capital at Jerusalem. But at this point, Israel is still kind of getting settled in terms of their, um, the temple hasn't been built yet. And the ark itself contained the signs of the Exodus and the covenant. It contained Aaron the high priest's staff, it contained a jar of manna, and it contained the stones of the Ten Commandments. And these were all meant to be physical, tangible reminders of God's provision and care. A reminder that God liberated you from slavery, that God provided for you in the wilderness, and that God chose you from among all the nations to be his people, to be a royal priesthood and a holy nation. And overall, the ark was a sign of paradise, a sign of God and humanity walking together in intimate fellowship a sign of creation rightly ordered around the right praise of God. It is a sign of Yahweh's presence among his people and a pledge of the people's obedience. Therefore, to touch the most sacred object in all of Israel is dangerous business. It would be akin to saying, let's have a poker game at the altar. Indeed, God was very clear about what would happen to anyone who touched the ark. About anyone who removed the lid just to get a peek at what was inside. And we know from the scriptures that there were those who did not heed this warning and fell down dead. The warning was to say, This is what's going to happen if you do this. So, in touching the ark, what happened was a sinful person is coming into direct contact with the Holy God. And so, God made it very clear that the way to transport and handle the ark was very well established. That everyone would know. That God established these in Israel's liturgical rituals. And what there was, was there was poles, right? And the poles were supposed to stay on the side of the ark, and that was how you moved the ark, was with the poles. No other way. It was to be carried by people, by priests, holding the poles. So when transporting the ark in an ox cart, and in touching the ark, even with the best of intentions... Uzzah is committing a serious action that is more than just a small liturgical error. Uzzah is being willfully ignorant in how he approaches and how he understands holy things. You see, Uzzah is, you could say, a pragmatist. Let's just find the easiest and quickest way to transport the art from point A to point B. Because in the end, it's just an expensive gold box and we really don't have to worry about it that kind of pragmatic response means that God's response is in his explanation of what would happen and why the ark was so important. It makes God's response understandable and justifiable because Azza is refusing to give proper reverence to God. You see, in calling Israel to be his people, God is very clear time and again of his expectations of the way that the people were to worship him and to give honor to his name. Books like Leviticus... And here's my sales pitch for our upcoming Bible study. You can come on Thursday mornings from 10:30 to 11:30 at Midtown cafe, and we're going to explore books like, we're going to explore the book of Leviticus. So books like Leviticus clearly and meticulously outline what Israel's worship is to look like, to be unlike all the other nations of their, and their worship of their gods. And one thing is very clear throughout all these instructions in Leviticus, that liturgical compromise and half-measures and pragmatic considerations are never acceptable. But why? Doesn't that seem too extreme, too rigid, too legalist? It's because God's people are always to offer their best to God, because God always offers his best to his people, offering his very self. Do you remember the difference between the sacrifices of Cain and Abel? Cain's was good enough. Abel's was his best. So as one commentator notes, Uzzah's punishment for steadying the ark shows that nothing can be considered lightly when it comes to God. The strangeness of God's actions has nothing to do with capriciousness. God is not given to temper tantrums. Rather, God's actions are always a function of God's holiness, of his absolutely unique manner of being. Or to put it simply, God is God and I am not. And this is why the language of the Psalms and the Prophets is full of strong and even terrifying imagery at times. Because the Psalmists and the Prophets are trying to underline underline the sheer holiness and uniqueness of God. God is God, I am not. You see, God is never arbitrary in his actions. But this does not mean that God's actions are always understandable to us from a human point of view. So in the end, the striking down of Uzzah remains inexplicable from our perspective because it is the act of a holy God. And King David himself recognizes this. Did you catch David's response to all of this when he sees Uzzah fall down dead? The text tells us that David got angry because the Lord's anger lashed out against Uzzah. David is like, what is going on here, God? This is a little extreme. But the Hebrew word used for anger can also be translated as afraid. So David is both angry and afraid terrified even. And this response of anger and of being angry and being afraid simultaneously are appropriate and understandable human responses to a holy, utterly unique God, especially when this God does things that are beyond our understanding. So David wisely decides to stop with the liturgical pragmatism until such a time as he is prepared to properly and reverently bring the Ark into Jerusalem. See, David and Uzzah thought they were doing the right thing. But their good intentions notwithstanding, God had to remind them that no one can take the holy things of God lightly or irreverently. But this does not mean that reverence is a gloomy, dour affair. Because remember, David puts on robes and dances before the ark, with a full symphony accompanying him as he comes into Jerusalem. You see, reverent worship can and should be joyful and joyous but provided that our hearts and minds are properly focused on the object of our worship, the holy and living God. Our hearts are restless, God, until they find rest in you. As you've heard me say before, humans are fundamentally worshipping creatures. We either worship God or we worship things that are not God. When something other than God is given glory in the highest, the garden, paradise, turns into a desert, and we find ourselves exiled from God. So as God's people, our baptismal vocation as a holy nation and a royal priesthood is to worship God on behalf of humanity and creation and to invite others to participate in our chorus of joyful praise and thanksgiving. As God's people entrusted and gifted with the care of holy things, we treat these holy things with respect and reverence, precisely because they, like the Ark of the Covenant, are a physical reminder of and indeed a participation in the very holiness of God. It is through Christ that we are able to receive and touch holy things. We don't treat them lightly, because to treat them lightly is to treat God lightly. So if we are inviting people to be part of our joyful chorus of praise, then we need them to understand and know that the God we worship is worthy of our worship, not because he's a pushover, not because he's easy to get along with, but because he is holy love. We should not be surprised that the world does not take God seriously. But whenever the church fails to take God seriously, she will certainly find herself in exile and decline. So my brothers and sisters in Christ, as God's holy and beloved people, a royal priesthood and a holy nation, be reminded of this, that God wills our good, and that God takes us seriously because he is holy love. So may we always take God's love and holiness seriously in our exuberant, celebratory, and joyful reverence as we receive gifts from our holy God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.